the Equine Veterinary Education Journal. This is the EVE Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the April edition of the EVE Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Carter. Today, Claire Scantlebury and Imogen Johns will firstly be discussing histological evaluation of liver biopsies, followed by Sam Hall and myself talking about equine odontoclastic tooth resorption and hypocementosis. The second interview begins at approximately 14 minutes into the podcast. Critically appraised topic. This afternoon we've got Imogen Johns with us. She's going to be talking about a critical appraised topic on horses with liver disease. Imogen is an equine medicine specialist at B&W Equine Hospital in Gloucestershire. And we're going to talk today about looking at the benefit of biopsies versus blood results. Hello Imogen. Oh, hello there Claire. Hi, thanks for joining us. So first of all, could you describe the liver biopsy process? And is this suitable for every case of suspected hepatic disease? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the process itself is relatively simple. It's performed in standing sedated horses utilising ultrasound guidance. Um, Before we had ultrasound, there was a technique described to do the biopsies blind, utilising the sort of point of the elbow, point of the shoulder, point of the hip, and somewhere around the 14th to 15th intercostal space. And whilst that's generally okay, a paper that's been published in the last couple of years has suggested that the liver is not always in that site. So ultrasound guidance is always recommended and it is part of the sort of routine workup for hepatopathy anyway, so looking for abnormalities on, on the ultrasound. So the ultrasound is used not only to identify where the liver is, but also to work out the depth that the needle needs to be placed to obtain the biopsy itself. Surgical prep is performed, um, there's local anaesthetic that's placed as a skin bleb and then through the intercostal musculature. And then a spring-loaded biopsy needle is used. Typically, it's a 14-gauge needle. There are a couple of different lengths that you can use, but most standard horses, a 15-centimetre needle will be sufficient, ponies um, perhaps a little bit shorter. And the biopsy itself is, the needle is advanced through the intercostal muscles. Sometimes you can feel the needle itself going into the liver, but not all the time. And you fire the biopsy needle into the liver and hopefully obtain your sample. Usually I obtain somewhere between two and four samples of liver, if if I can submit um, at least two to three for histopathology and one for culture. So is this something that's generally done in referral practices or have you heard that it's also done in in first opinion practice? Yeah, it's a bit of both. It very much depends on the comfort of the person doing the procedure, just pretty much like any any procedure. Technically, it's not hugely demanding. I tend to prefer to do it in a hospital situation if I can, mostly because that allows me to keep the horse in the hospital just for an hour or two afterwards to make sure there aren't any complications like bleeding, for example. It's certainly something that can be done on a yard, though, again, I tend to just wait around for a little bit afterwards to make sure that the, the horse or the pony is okay. So. Um, it, once you become comfortable with a technique, it's certainly something that can be done in pretty much any practice setting. Hmm. Okay. And so what are the kind of pros and cons of, of using biopsy versus a blood test for diagnostics? 
blood tests will always be your first port of call in trying to diagnose a horse with a potential hepatopathy. I think the, the pros are, are pretty obvious. Certainly, it's a taking blood is a pretty non-invasive procedure. You tend to get your results very quickly, even if you have to send your bloods out to an outside laboratory. You'll typically get those next day. In comparison to a biopsy, is much cheaper. So it is what we would call a, a good screening test for the identification of a potential hepatopathy. Cons, I guess we don't really have a good idea from the blood results whether they're what type of liver disease might be present. And also, in comparison to a biopsy, for example, it is not considered the best test to definitively say yes or no, there is liver disease there. So it's a good screening tool, and it is certainly the most widely used test to try and work out whether a horse has a hepatopathy. Hmm. Thinking about biopsies, cons obviously would be it is an invasive procedure, although it is a relatively low-risk procedure. Um, it is invasive. You are going into a vascular organ. And if the horse has a severe hepatopathy where clotting factors might potentially be affected, there is a potentially, potentially an increased risk of bleeding, um, although I did a study a couple of years ago that looked at whether there was an association between bleeding or complications after a biopsy and a coagulopathy, and we didn't identify any, any link between the two. But it is certainly something that we always discuss with the client prior to the procedure. There is obviously the added expense in comparison to the bloods, for example, and what we have to assume is that the disease that is affecting the liver is diffuse because you can really only sample a small area of the liver that you can identify on ultrasound. So if there's a focal disease that's distant to that, you will miss it on the biopsy. Yeah. But the, the pros are that it is the best way to say yes or no, there is liver disease present, assuming it's diffuse. And because of the fact that we have quite a nice scoring system that's been developed, it's probably the best way we have of determining a prognosis for the horse. Thank you. So this article that is in Equine Veterinary Education reports on a critical appraisal of the research and there's all sorts of different ways that we can approach this. So in this um, example you've used something called a PICO score. Could you describe what that is and how you used it to appraise the literature? Yeah, absolutely. So PICO, it's not really a score that you end up getting. It's just a, a method by which you actually approach your literature search. And essentially, it's a mnemonic for the important parts of a well-built clinical question. So really, it's a way of trying to methodically analyze the literature to answer a specific question. So we're looking at a specific patient, a specific problem, and trying to then compare it to something else rather than just saying, Let's look at all the articles that have all talked about liver and the prognosis. So in this particular paper, what we were trying to effectively answer was, should I take a biopsy or should I take bloods if I'm trying to work out whether my horse will do okay with a hepatopathy? So the P uh, in PICO stands for patient. In this situation, it was horses with liver disease. The I stands for intervention or indicator. So in this situation, we chose to um, determine that by histology of biopsies. Um, then the C is comparison intervention or control. And in this situation, we were comparing biopsies to blood tests. And then the O is outcome. And the outcome we were looking for was accuracy and providing prognosis. So it's just a very well thought out way of trying to answer clinical questions. Okay, great. And 
So when you were reviewing the literature, how many studies did you identify in total? Well, as anyone who's ever done a literature search knows, if you put key terms in, you tend to pick up a whole lot of things that actually aren't relevant at all. So, for example, on a PubMed search, when you, when you enter equine, liver and prognosis, you come up with 55 papers. But actually, when you scrutinize those papers carefully, looking at only those papers that would be particularly relevant to our PICO question, we ended up with five so having a PICO question doesn't necessarily make anything easier as far as trying to narrow down the literature, but it does allow you to be very specific in choosing the publications that are actually relevant to the question that you have. Okay, so which studies were included? How did you select those in the end? So in the end, what we looked at was only papers that determined prognosis, so there had to be some sort of follow-up included. Um, clearly, horses had to have either blood tests done or a biopsy done, and those had to indicate that there was a, a liver disease population in there. Ideally, a paper would have had both in them. So effectively, we were trying to look for papers that had discussion of prognosis and biopsy results, as well as blood work results and a comparison of the two in looking at prognosis. Okay. So with many studies, it seems with the ones that you found here, which is not unusual for studies across all of veterinary research, then there were a range of different kind of study designs and a range of different stats used. Did you find that that made it difficult to assess or compare between the studies and, and make your conclusions? Yeah, I mean, effectively, it was almost impossible to directly compare studies. They were all retrospective, and that was really the only thing that they had in common, apart from the fact that they were all discussing horses with liver disease. So um, the, the methodology, the inclusion of criteria, whether they were looking at biopsy results or blood results, all of those differed, and they spanned a relatively long time period. We did exclude papers that were over 25 years old, but even still we had studies ranging from 1996 to 2015, and we certainly know that things have changed during that period of time when it comes to liver disease. Were there any kind of obvious gaps in the research that's been done previously or ob obvious weaknesses in the studies that additional questions that you might think would be useful to look at in the future? Yeah, as is often the case, unfortunately, when you're trying to get an answer to a clinical question, there's rarely exactly the paper that you want published. Probably the most obvious weakness, which is a weakness that is just inherent in, in the study design, is that these were all retrospective studies and they come along with all their own potential weaknesses so variable inclusion criteria lack of information recorded at the time when the patients were actually seen not all animals had everything recorded as far as blood test results for example um, and variable follow-up as well especially with some of the papers that clearly were looking at prognosis some of these horses had been evaluated perhaps up to 15 years before the paper was published and trying to contact donors that amount of time later to see how their horse was getting on or had got on is always challenging so there are clearly weaknesses in those retrospective studies and, and when you're reading them you just need to keep that in mind you know in an ideal world to try and answer our particular PICO question so is it better to do histo of your biopsies or take blood to try and get a prognosis you would design a, a prospective study with well-defined inclusion criteria 
set protocols, identifying horses with hepatic disease and have a defined follow-up periods with specific questions. In addition to perhaps having it in a sort of multi-centre study, most of these studies were performed, well, they were all performed in the, in the UK with a fairly similar lot of horses, especially in the more recent studies. So it would be really interesting to look at horses or include horses, for example, in the US where they might have different diseases or Europe so that actually the data is more relevant to practitioners um, around the world. So from this PICO assessment, then what conclusions can you draw about your question? So we were trying to answer the question as to whether or not we should do a biopsy because I think most of us would prefer just to do blood tests. It's cheaper, it's easier, it's more convenient, it's more timely, it's less risky. But from the evidence that we have, and the strongest evidence I think comes from the most recent publication, which was in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2015, and they actually were the only paper that did specifically compare blood tests in their situation. They used serum bile acids and compared them to histology of biopsies. And from that and sort of accumulating the evidence from the other papers to try and determine prognosis specifically the biopsy in particular when you use the biopsy score that Durham developed in 2003 that is still considered the best way to determine a a prognosis so if that's the specific question that you're trying to answer then doing a liver biopsy is is still recommended as as the way to most accurately determine that prognosis for horses. Okay, fabulous. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you would like to add to that? Yeah, I guess the only other question, and and it wasn't what we were setting out to do, but it's always hard to know which cases it's appropriate to do hepatic biopsies in. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's most useful as far as prognostication, but it's not always necessary um, in every horse that you see an increased GGT in, for example. So again, there's no right or wrong as to when to do a biopsy, um, but I would tend to do a biopsy in horses that aren't progressing with what I would consider sort of first-line treatment, be that liver supplements, antibiotics, corticosteroids, whatever the treatment of choice is, if the horse is not responding within several weeks or if it's clinically deteriorating, I think those are the cases where biopsy is appropriate. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for joining us in the gym, Johns. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Review article. The next paper we will be discussing is titled Equine Odontoclastic Tooth Resorption and Hypocementosis. All papers can be accessed through the early view articles on the Equine Veterinary Education Journal website. We're joined by the author Sam Hall. Sam is an RCVS and European Specialist in Equine Veterinary Dentistry and partner at Poolhouse Equine Clinic. Welcome Sam. Can you describe equine odontoclastic tooth resorption and hypocementosis? Yes, of course. Um, well, equine odontoclastic tooth resorption hypocementosis syndrome, or EOTRH as we try and call it, otherwise it's way too big of a mouthful, um, is a progressive disease. It's a painful disease syndrome that affects aged horses. We're assuming that it'll affect donkeys and other equids, but honestly, the only case reports have been in horses to this date. It affects primarily in sizes and canines and has infrequently affected cheek teeth in recent papers as well and it's characterized clinically by gingival inflammation edema recession calculus deposition 
feed accumulation, subgingival swellings, bulbous enlargement, and some draining tracts and associated periodontal disease. And then obviously eventually will lead to tooth mobility, tooth fracture and tooth loss and the morbidity affected with this. What might be the reason that the owner contacted you? Is this a fairly painful condition? Yes, well, it is a fairly painful condition. However, because horses are prey animals and they tend to not show overt signs of pain, especially to do with their oral cavity, in my opinion, generally horses are asymptomatic. And that's generally what we find. A lot of horses aren't actually showing any signs and it's just picked up on routine examination. Which could be true for, for quite a few equine yeah, exactly. conditions. But obviously the clinical signs that are noted are a pain, masturbatory difficulty, quidding, which I'd say is probably the most significant clinical sign that I would match the disease, quidding, and the difficulty in prehending feed, particularly with the incisors. Quite often the carrot test can be a good one where you present the horse with a carrot that normally a healthy horse would just bite down with its central or intermediate incisors, and, and they really try and avoid doing that. But hypersalivation, halitosis, bitting problems, head shaking periodic inappetence and weight loss have all been attributed to this disease syndrome. When you're examining the horse, what are the macroscopic findings and then how would you go ahead to make a definitive diagnosis? Well, I think primarily at this point in our understanding of the disease process, diagnosis is based on clinical presentation. You're presented with an old aged equine with some of the aforementioned clinical designs around the gingiva and these teeth. And then obviously the radiographic changes. And radiography is really key to fully assessing this disease as most of the early changes will occur, occur sub gingivally so you might just see one or two little indicators such as gingival inflammation or edema you know that the incisors especially subgingerly just look a bit fuller than maybe you think they should you take some radiographs of those and usually those clinical signs are just the tip of the iceberg and once you've taken these intraoral radiographs of the incisors and the canines which are really easy to obtain in practice with just a well sedated patient a headstand and a portable x-ray generator Usually you're quite often horrified that actually there's an awful lot of quite significant radiological changes that have already gone on regarding areas of tooth resorption, widening of the periodontal space and this bulbous enlargement or hypercementosis of the intraalveolar part of the tooth. And do the teeth themselves look grossly affected? Not at the beginning. Usually above the gingival margin, the teeth can look largely normal. Okay, But when the, t the disease progresses far more, you can have literally areas of the whole of the clinical crown that have been eroded away by a resorptive lesion. Or, you know, sometimes these teeth can look grossly a third, 50%, 100% larger than you would normally expect the clinical crown of a tooth to look like. And in terms of treatment, what are your options for this condition? Well, unfortunately, regarding treatment at the moment, a firm and, and curative treatment is not possible at the moment. But the condition can be managed to some degree quite successfully for an extended period of time, in my opinion. However, careful monitoring of these cases with regular or examination checkups and radiographs is key to just monitor the progression of the disease because the disease can progress quite variably between both individual horses and between individual teeth within the same oral cavity. So really keeping an eye on how things are progressing is key. But 
Therapy can involve a combination of home care, including removal of food acclimatization, i.e. toothbrushing, topical administration of chlorohexidine solution, and also other things that have been suggested is analgesia when they need it, pulse antibiosis when they need it, when having big flare-ups of periodontal disease associated with this disease syndrome, dietary modification, getting them on soft complementary diets so you know you're covering their their nutritional basis in an easy format incisor reduction corticosteroids gingivoplasty surgical curatage and debridement and even intraoral splinting have all been advocated on occasions but however as i said the disease is progressive and it invariably results in the extraction of the teeth or teeth involved what is the prognosis for this condition even though you can manage these horses pretty well, I think the prognosis has to be guarded at best and probably poor in most cases, okay, because it is going to progress to an end point and you're going to get loss of these teeth. However, complete removal of the affected teeth does carry a good prognosis, in my opinion, for an improved quality of life for a short to medium term. So I think really, rather than prognosis per se, you need to look at the management goals for these cases of EOTH. And you've got to bear in mind they're usually reasonably aged equids as well. So it's early recognition with a good clinical and oral examination, radiographic diagnosis and early management with counselling of the owners that extractions, even if they're not indicated on first diagnosis, they are going to be required with the fullness of time as the disease progresses because it will prevent present obviously in painful bouts of periodontitis tooth mobility which is painful and tooth fracture is the end point can you talk us through the varied hypotheses on the etiology of the condition well this is a little bit more intricate and and as it stands we don't have a clear understanding of the etiology of eotrh at the moment it's likely to be multifactorial, as most of these things are, and several theories to date have been put forward. Initially, an immune-mediated syndrome has been proposed, primarily because there's similar immune-mediated syndromes both in cats and in humans. Any of the listeners out there that do or have done small animal practice will be very familiar with you know, cat resorptive lesions, and there are some similarities to that. However, we've known about cat resorptive lesions, formerly FORLs, for an awful lot of years and they've been doing research into it for 30 years so that doesn't fill us with an awful lot of confidence the other primary um etiology that's been proposed is increased occlusal forces in aging teeth okay because you get an excessive mechanical stress on the periodontal ligament of these older horses which causes focal micronecrosis and therefore the release of cytokines and other inflammatory mediated products that lead to the recruitment and activation of clastic cells and subsequently these odontoclastic cells cause these resorptive lesions within the dental tissues which can even progress as far as the pulp in the end in turn this affects the tooth integrity and strength and then the body tries to repair that in terms of deposition of reparative cementum by cementoblasts and it's interesting that aged equine teeth have proportionally less periodontal ligament to occlusal area than young teeth, but they're obviously expected to deal with the same masturbatory forces as a younger horse would do. And as we say, this starts this cascade of events that we think are initiated by these occlusal forces and micronecrosis. It's been interesting that we think that on the back of these age-related stresses and strain, these might create 
gingival lesions and necrotic areas that really make a prime environment for colonization for microorganisms to thrive and promote the development of this disease syndrome. A more recent paper has just suggested that bacterial members of the red complex and other tripomona species are involved in the affected equines of EOTRH. And actually, all infection by these species were reported in 23 of 23 cases of EOTRH, suggesting that there's a role in this pathologist, this pathogen, sorry, in the role of this disease syndrome. But it also should be noted that Trypsomona species were also found in large numbers of control horses. But given, as I said, the likely multifactorial nature of EOTRH, contact with the pathologist the pathogen in itself isn't likely to entail infection in its own right and it's likely that individual horses own immune status is likely to be a crucial factor in the etiology of this disease syndrome. Mechanical stress and colonization of these red complex bacteria are likely to be the two key areas and they're the ones that have had the most scientific research to date but other etiologies have anecdotally been suggested and these include ischemic necrosis, genetic linkage, Cushing's disease, hypervitaminosis A, hyperkalemia, hyperparathyroidism. And also um, iatrogenic causes have been suggested such as incisor realignment or reduction in canine buffing as possible contributory factors. What are your findings on histopathology? I think if you can do histopathology of these cases, it's really important, but you do need to send them to somewhere where they've got some experience of dealing with dental specimens because they take a lot of decalcification and also ideally dental specimens from equine species um, and and that is a little bit of a niche area but my co-author from this review paper is always more than happy to receive receive samples so just bear that in mind anyway but constantly the histopathological findings suggest an etiological contribution of initial biomechanical stresses and strains followed by the secondary involvement of microorganisms as I, as I said in the previous answer to the question that was posed to me but the characteristic histopathological features of the disease generally involve resorptive lesions at the periphery of the cementum initially and then odontoclasts obviously line these resorptive lesions and they're located in resorptive cavities that are also called hollow shipman lacunae okay and the newly formed odontoclasts are located a short distance behind the resorptive surface so it's like you get this wave of resorption and then just behind that are the cells that are actually responsible for the loss of this tissue and then obviously on the back of that we get a reparative process where hollow shipman's lacunae become filled with a regular cementum and there are very interesting histological features and these are microscopic reversal lines where the resorbed cementum or normal dentine meets this newly formed irregular cementum and this is quite a significant histological finding with this disease syndrome and there's also interestingly been in specimens from this disease possible evidence for periodontal ligament reattachment and that's where the new periodontal ligaments can reform and insert into regenerated repaired cementum and, and that's quite exciting for possibilities of regenerative medicine to do with equine dentistry. Thank you it's actually very interesting isn't it? Yeah I mean the only other thing but it's only really dental geeks I can go into the difference between these three types that have been put out there but you know as we say in the paper we think it, we think it's the same disease people yeah. are just 
getting a, a snapshot of it at different points in its lifetime. What was your critical assessment and analysis of the field of research available to review this condition? Okay, well, my current author and I reviewed 27 peer-reviewed papers published between 2004, when the condition was first described clinically um, by Dave Clue in North America, and the seminal paper published by my co-author and his colleagues in 2008, where the the paper looks at all the histological findings to it. And we looked at, obviously, those two key papers all the way up to papers published in 2015. The first review paper was published on this disease by me at a European Congress in 2012 but latterly the research has become more focused on on the etiology of the condition which I think is important however as with all equine and probably most veterinary papers a more robust clinical research model probably needs to be used with larger control groups and blinded methodology and just the sort of scientific rigor that's applied to you know human medical research but you know I'm fully aware that these things are far more difficult to achieve in equine clinical practice where you know you've got a client's animal's health you know involved in 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 trying to get this clinical data and how would you see the approach to this condition evolving well I think unfortunately until we get a better understanding of the etiology of EOTRH you know it's going to be difficult to answer this question and probably just extraction of these painful teeth is going to be the mainstay so obviously with further research into EOTRH hopefully this will reveal the etiology and and maybe the initial symptoms enabling us to recognize this disease just at a slightly earlier stage and this will undoubtedly lead to you know an improved therapy and better prognosis for these cases Um, but i think probably looking a little bit further ahead um, like other medical disciplines one could imagine that the use of regenerative medicine techniques or even gene manipulation um, techniques such as splicing etc etc could be utilized in any future therapies for this disease syndrome Thanks again to Sam. Thank you for listening. Join us again for the next edition of the EVE podcast. You can access more podcasts searching Equine Veterinary Education on iTunes or via the Equine Veterinary Education website. The Equine Veterinary Education Journal.